I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit AbyssBattery.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. When it comes down to it, what are we at our core? We are North American Watchdogs. to another episode of the North American Waterfowler. I'm Elliot. This is episode number 35. And today I have a guest that I'm really, really excited to talk to. We had him on the Duck Gun podcast a couple of times. We are going to be talking to the public land manager of Cheyenne Bottoms in Kansas. Cheyenne Bottoms is a 41,000 acre marsh and is the largest wetland in the interior United States. It is absolutely massive. It resides in the central part of the state and the central part of Kansas is sometimes referred to as the hourglass because all of your natural non-man-made marshes are kind of in the middle part of the state. So the idea is that waterfowl coming down the central flyway will pass through the middle of that hourglass where everything's kind of squeezed through the central part of the state. Now, there is excellent waterfowl opportunities throughout the state, but Kansas, because of Cheyenne Bottoms, is kind of known as the hourglass or the middle part of the state is known as the hourglass. So Jason's been the manager at Cheyenne Bottoms for, I'm not sure how many years, five to 10, probably, I can't remember. Um, but a really, really interesting guest always has a lot of things to say. And I absolutely think it's essential for these public land managers of places like Cheyenne Bottoms to be North American waterfowlers. And and that's what Jason is. He is absolutely eaten up with waterfowling. He's a hunter himself. As a hunter in the Central Flyway, you know, I think um, one of the most disappointing things is when you see guys be hired for public land management areas that involve a lot of duck hunting and they're not duck hunters themselves. I just think it's essential for um, those areas to have managers that are into waterfowl hunting. So we're going to, we're going to get into that in just a second. Guys, if you really like what I'm doing, the best thing that you can do to support me is give me a rating 
whether you're listening to it on iTunes or Spotify, give me that five-star rating. Let me know how you're doing. If you ever have any ideas for podcasts or thoughts, you can reach me freelanceduckhunting at gmail.com. Also, you can reach me at Instagram at freelanceduckhunting or at the Facebook group, North American Waterfowler Podcast over on Facebook. So come over and join us. And if you want to get even more content, patreon.com slash freelance duck hunting, where every month I draw one person to come on the podcast with me and talk about waterfowl hunting. There is a waterfowl video series course over there, and you can get entered in the hunt giveaway, which is coming up faster and faster. The longer you are over there on Patreon, the more entries you get in the hunt giveaway where this year, 2023, the winner will join up with me and we will do a weekend hunt fest. I don't know where that's going to be, whether that's going to be in Kansas or Oklahoma or Nebraska. Um, those are kind of the three places I'm thinking of. But come on over and get signed up and you can have a chance to come and hunt with me. So we are going to jump right into this. I don't want to wait any longer. I'm gonna, I've got a list of things I want to talk with Jason about. Um, I'm going to talk to him just about his history at the bottoms, some of what he thinks are the most difficult things, the most satisfying things, the history of the bottoms. And, you know, in this drought we're in, water is always an issue. And there, there has been talk for years out there at that kind of central western part of Kansas that the aquifer out there is drying up. And if that is true and we lose that aquifer, it could seriously affect Cheyenne Bottom. So I want to talk to him about that. I want to talk to him about some of the new regulations. And then I'm absolutely going to be talking to him about the proposed non-resident regulations that Kansas is throwing around where, where, um, non-resident waterfowl hunters would only be able to hunt Sunday, Mondays, and Tuesdays. And I do want to talk with him about filming on public land as well. So um, let's go ahead and jump into this. Let's get Jason on here right now. Hi, Jason. Thank you for joining us today. How's everything going out there at the bottoms? Well, uh, it's going all right, I guess. Uh, depends on your your perspective. It's Still uh, pretty dry out here. We've been suffering that long-term drought, seems like, for a little over a year now. So we're uh, still struggling with the water situation. But uh, everything else seems to be going really well. We're getting a lot accomplished out here. So making good headway yeah. on, on a lot of different projects. You're able to get a lot more done during dry times. Isn't that right? Yes. Yeah. We're, we're you know, most of the time our uh, our schedule doesn't allow, or we get three months out of the year that we could go out and work actually work do something in the pools and stuff and and we've we've had a year now to get caught up on a lot of stuff and and there's been a lot of things i've wanted to, to do and try and hadn't been able to because of the water situation that we're able to do now so right and we're gonna I, i've got a lot of questions about water that we're going to get into because man, that's like a central part of your life. It's like, where's the water? How much water? Too much water? Water rights? Yeah, aquifer there's never, there's issues. Ne water is never. It never comes. Doesn't seem like it. It comes at the right time or, or in the volume that you want it and stuff. So yeah, it's right. it's 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 pretty complicated topic right now. So, so what year were you hired on at Cheyenne Bottoms, and what was the state of 
like the overall picture of what was going on there when you kind of inherited the complex? So I, I hired on, uh, it was almost uh, five years ago. Sorry, I got a phone call ringing right now. But anyway, uh, five years ago is in 2017 is when I, or six years ago, sorry, when I hired on out here. Uh, when I got out here, there, I mean, it not a not, don't want to say a, not a lot's been done, but uh, it was a lot of stuff. A lot of our infrastructure had been aging a little bit, so there was a lot of challenges that we had to face uh, from the get go, and we've been able to uh, handle a lot of those challenges in the last couple of years and uh, kind of put it, it step in the right direction. One of the one of the big uh, people came out here and they saw a lot of cattails. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, you know, everybody was kind of complaining about the cattail situation. It really wasn't uh, the direct, the uh, cattails weren't the problem and they were more of a result of the problem. And we've been able to uh, fix some of those uh, ailments and then also get in there. And, and we've done a lot of cattail control out here as well. Uh, a lot of it re- revolves around uh, silt removal that we've done to allow us to, to better manage our water situation that we have out here. Get, get water on and, and get water off at, at the right times of the year. So, Right. Ken, now I, I, you came on um, the Duck on podcast, which is the previous podcast I was on mm-hmm. several times. And the last time we talked, you were talking about the renovations you guys were making to get water on or get water off. Can you talk about what did you guys do exactly? And is that project complete? Okay. So, so what, what we did a lot of, we have uh, where our pools come together. We have what we call our hubs. Uh, they're a series of gates, or they're smaller, kind of like a pond situation, where we have gates and our pumps in there, at, in those hubs. That and we couldn't get water to those hubs to get water. Most importantly, off during the springtime. And what we want to do is we want to get the water off during the springtime to allow us to get in this in, uh, during the summer months to uh, not only control cattails, but plant millet, our, our food sources, and, and allow our moist soil plants to germinate. So our problem was we couldn't get water off. So water just stayed kind of in the pools and was the only way we'd get water off was through evaporation. Um, and what that allowed was cattails to germinate and uh, continue to take over uh, a lot of our pools. So what we've done is uh, initially we started a lot of the project ourselves. Uh, we dug our ditches out. And then we started cleaning our hubs out so we could get water into those hubs so we can get them off the perimeter pools. And then uh, we've gone through, we also had a $6 million Pittman-Robertson Act grant uh, that started in 2018. And we just kind of pretty much have wrapped up most of those projects there. So we've also now replaced most of our pumps. We've added a new pump station. Um, We've added or or, uh, repaired a lot of our uh, some of our gates weren't working properly, so we've uh, repaired or, or replaced some of our gates as well. Again, all for water level management, and most of it, like I said, most importantly, getting water off during the spring. When I say getting water off, we don't take it off the property or, or send it on down. What we do is we have a center pool that we're able to store water in. So we take water off and we store it in these pools, uh, in, in our center pools, and we uh, try to keep that water level up. We store it in center pools, and that's the water that we use in the fall to flood uh, for our fall migration. So if we leave it in the pools again, it, most of it, if we just left it in the printer pools, it would just evaporate off and we wouldn't have any water in the fall. We consolidate the water, 
put it deeper water. We could get our water up to about six foot deep in those center pools. And then that reduces our evaporative loss too throughout the summer. Because during the summer months, we'll lose a half inch to an inch of water a day. Wow. If, if we, and it's less if we consolidate it down in those storage pools as well. So. Right. And th those center pools, those are the refuge pools, right? Yeah. The, the, the one A, one B and one C pools. Yes. Okay. So do you, do you have the ability when water comes in to design, does it all come into the center pools first? How does the water flow work exactly? Like where does it go to? How do you push it around? It's uh, a little bit more complicated. Generally speaking, when water comes in, most of the water that we get is uh, we, we have a series of water rights on one of them on the Arkansas River, one of them on the Wet Walnut Creek, and one of them on the Dry Walnut Creek. We have water rights and we have three diversion dams on those that we're able to bring, divert water from those drainages and put them into our inlet canal system here at the bottom. From there, we, we can control that water and we I determine where it goes and like generally speaking, we put them directly into those center storage pools to keep those water levels up. And then there's also a couple drainages that flow into pool two, which is the biggest pool that we have no control over water coming into those as well. Those are blood Creek and deception Creek. So we get water from those. And if there's a big rain in the right spot, we, we can't control anything on that water coming in. So then it goes into pool two and then we have to, we could pull it off of pool two then and then put it where it goes. But that process is pretty slow, especially with the big areas pool two is. So, um, yeah. like it's not, it's not an easy process. It's, it's uh, that's way oversimplification of, of our process of getting water. Uh, one, one of the misconceptions that we have is, is a lot of people think we have groundwater pumps. We don't have no, None of our, our water rights, uh, we don't have any ability to, to pump water out of the ground and put it into uh, or to use for flooded. Everything that we use is, is completely surface runoff. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. In, in Kansas, you've got senior um, water rights and junior. I would have, And senior means you get your water ahead of the people with junior uh, water rights who a lot of times on dry years don't get any water at all. I would assume you guys have senior water rights. Yeah. Mo most of what we have is, is very senior water rights. Yeah. Some of them are, um, some of the water rights date back to the, uh, some of the very first water rights ever applied for in Kansas. Uh, so we have some very early water rights on some of them. Some of them are a little bit later on, but the, our three main ones are, are, are pretty much senior water rights on, on those. So that does help. Um, and like I said, those, those are pretty crucial to, to us getting water and maintaining water. So it's not direct rainfall per se over the top of, of Cheyenne Bottoms that fills the bottoms up. It's more if it fall, if the rain falls over those drainage basins and stuff and then allows us to bring that water in, that's pretty, that's more critical. So it, uh, even though we may not get rain here uh, directly over the bottoms, we could if the rain's in the right location, we could still get a significant amount of rain. Um, into the bottoms. Like right now, most of the, the water that we've been been able to bring in this spring is actually came from like two counties to the west of us. Mm -hmm. So th there was a big rain over there. So we've been able to, to capture that water and bring it in. What we Little we've been able to do this, this spring so far. Right. Yeah, I've been watching. It seems like that you guys have gotten a little, a little bit of rain, more rain kind of in your area than some of the other 
other complexes. So where, where are you guys at as far as water you have stored right now compared to kind of a, a year, a normal year where things are looking pretty good? Um, well, uh, it's still not real great situation. In, uh, we have water uh, right now, I have water being brought into to 1A, pool 1A, and it's pretty much uh, basically a couple inches deep across two-thirds of the, the, that pool. Is made mm-hmm. uh, most of the, almost all of the water for the first. Uh, I've been bringing in water uh, not quite a, a month now. Uh, most of that water is just soaking into the ground. I mean, it was right. so dry out here. I mean, that's where it's going. And the other thing, you know, we're at this large scale drought. Uh, even though we've been getting a lot of rain, there's been very little runoff, which is surprising. That a lot of the ponds uh, are still empty. Uh, so all the ponds before we get a water. A lot of the ponds need to start, you know, filling up and stuff. A lot of the soil moisture needs to get replenished. And uh, it just, it's been hitting in the right locations. It's just not not enough to really get that good runoff event that would put a significant amount of water in. Yeah, I, I watched the um, rain in the state quite a bit. And the, the areas that I hunt more, I watch a little more carefully and i'm i'm finding that it's really really difficult to predict how much runoff you're gonna get i mean we'll get a big rain and i'll think i'll I'll be watching the water tables at the reservoir that i really watch closely and i'll think man there's got to be some runoff of that and you'll get none and then the next rain i'll think oh that's not a very good rain and then all of a sudden things will jump up it's it seemed for me for being the non-educated layman in this topic it's really difficult to to predict how much yeah and and, uh you know, I watch a lot of, I watch the weather a lot. And then, you know, I mean, I hear thunder at three o'clock in the morning. I, I wake up and see where it's raining at in the area. Mm-hmm. And I watch a lot of the USGS stream flow gauges and stuff as well. Mm-hmm. And, and back in May, we had a three and a half inch rain right over the, I mean, here at headquarters, we had three and a half inches. And within a few days, you couldn't tell that it rained. I mean, you would think three yeah. and a half inches, man, there's going to be water everywhere. There was none. And, and some of the direct rainfall over the bottoms we've missed, you know, Great Bend just a few miles, five miles away from here, they've been getting some pounded with rain. And some of those, you know, they've had several two or three inch rains. And then out here, you get out here at the headquarters, we had 30 or 40 hundred. So we've just yeah. been missing that direct rain. And that's what we kind of needed, I think, uh, to really prime us is to get a good direct rain and then uh, have some follow up rains you know, to, to get that surf, that runoff. So we get some, some moisture or some water stored up here. So, I mean, it's, it's really priming. It, it, we've been the countryside. It's really getting prime uh, for that situation where we're going to get a significant rain and, and hopefully get, get filled back up. So. Yeah. Cause last year you guys were bone dry. I, I, that's the first time I ever remember the complex being just completely dry. Do you know the the last time before 2022 that there was no water out there? Yeah, it was 2013. Okay. Um, so it wasn't that long right. ago. And, and looking back at kind of historical stuff, uh, it seems like it's about every 10 years. We may not be completely dry, but about every 10 years we get really low. I think in the, the previous time before that it was completely dry it was uh, in the early 90s. Um, okay. in 2012, it dried up. There was just a little bit of water for part of the season by January of 2013. It was completely dry out here. And then it filled up, uh, August of 2013 is, uh, that year. 
historically, looking back at all the historical accounts of it, it was dry. Actually, it, Cheyenne Bottoms would go dry four out of ten years. Oh wow! So we're talking, we're talking, you know, thousands of years. It would be dry four out of ten years. So, hmm. and then just with the with the water structures that were put in place to capture the water, that's what changed it. Just be yeah, that, that's what has really changed the the, the ability to, to keep this get the water here and keep it kind of stored up. So, hmm. I was looking on before we talk because I really don't know much of the history of the place. So I was kind of, I've always wondered and thought, cause I, I don't hunt out there. In fact, it's been like five or five, well, about three or four years since I've been out there. I, I grew up um, right in only about an hour from there. So we hunted it a little bit more, but now I live kind of on the Eastern side, but so I haven't hunted it that awful much, probably 25 independent hunts in my life. And the thing about it that just amazes me it being the biggest, correct me if I'm wrong, but the largest marsh in the interior um, United States at 41,000 acres. Um, when you get out there and you're hunting, it feels like, especially, especially when there are cattails and the wind's blowing, it feels like you're in an ocean because you just can't <laughs> see anything but marsh yeah, in all directions. And I don't know of any other place that, that has that feeling. And I, I've thought, especially when I'm out there, it's like, what was this place like before they started cutting? Cause right now there's five huntable pools. How many huntable pools are there out there? Yeah, five. There's five huntable pools. What What would it have been like before, like a hundred years ago? I always wonder what it would have been like on a really wet year um, out there bef- before things were cut into pieces. And how could you have even gone gone through it? Do you know have any idea of the history of the place at all? Yeah, so the, the, I have some historical accounts of it. And it just sounded like it was just amazing. There was one account was uh, there was a guy, he was coming through and he basically started in on a horse and it took him all day long to, to get across the, he was on horseback across the whole, the whole, the whole area uh, on horseback the whole time it was in water. He said he saw a grove of trees off in the distance from one of the hillsides and he, and he, instead of going around, he thought it'd be quicker just to go through and it took him all day just to cut. The whole time it's going through marsh and water, and uh, and it ended up being uh, what he saw was a grove of trees was a uh, t- extremely tall clump of cattails is what he ended up going through. And another historical account was uh, he was the guy was here, and this was in like 1863. One of my favorite quotes about the place, but to sum it up, he uh, got here and, and uh, there was thousands and thousands of swans, ducks, and geese. And he felt like with one shot of his uh, shot shell, his shot barrel of his uh, gun, that he could shoot over 100 birds with one shot. There was that many <laughs> oh waterfowl here, and that was that would have been in the fall. I believe it was 1863. So uh, oh, just the historical accounts of it was was pretty uh, pretty interesting. The way Cheyenne Bottoms got its name was there was some pretty fierce battles. This was obviously a, a highly important area for the Native Americans to come and hunt. Uh, they had some good hillsides around here, uh, and they uh, fought really hard to to uh, maintain control over Cheyenne Bottoms itself. It was a, a big place for the buck, the bison to come uh, every year. The migration for the bison to come through and graze through the area, and again, it's extremely important hunting grounds for Native Americans. So, uh, some of those, some of the names Cheyenne Bottoms, that's where it came, came from. Cheyenne Indians, one of the creeks that flows into Cheyenne Bottoms, Blood Creek. 
is the name of it. And uh, there was a pretty fierce battle involving the Cheyenne Indians um, that they were, the, they said the battle was so fierce and there were so many warriors lost that it actually turned the creek blood uh, red with blood. And that's how the Blood Creek got its name. And again, that was a battle over control over what we call Cheyenne Bottoms now. So, Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, which is the one I like, and Keto. Get started today and get after your goals. Discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. Sign up and save. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 and use the code waypointpod50 to get 50% off. That's waypointpod50 at factormeals.com slash waypointpod50 to get 50% off. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores, and pass those sweet savings directly to you. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com waypoint. That's mintmobile.com waypoint. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com waypoint. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Yeah, it, it's certainly... Certainly a remarkable place. And back in the 1800s, we wouldn't have had any reservoirs in Kansas. And I don't know of very many natural lakes. I I could name maybe one um, sportsman lake. Other than that, I don't know of any Kansas, any just completely natural lakes. So you would have had these natural marshes, which there's three or four of them kind of in the middle of the state. You didn't have any ag fields at all. So you would think, I mean, I know they refer to it as the hourglass, but in the 1800s, you would think every single duck mm-hmm. that came through the state would go right through the right through that area. Yes. Yeah. Between us and Covira, Jamestown would have been another McPherson Valley wetlands. You know, between between those, there's generally, generally would have been at least one of them probably had water, uh, you know, even, mm-hmm. even in the dry years, even though Cheyenne Bottoms may have been dry. Uh, maybe McPherson Valley wetlands or uh, Covira or Jamestown would have had at least some water in there. And that's why, they, uh, you know, the ducks have been migrating and waterfowl have been migrating through here for thousands and thousands of years. They're keyed in on on these on these, the complexes that we have here in Kansas. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's centralized now, but you know, you take away the reservoirs, you take away all the farm ponds that farmers put in. You take away all the ag fields. I mean, I, I just can't imagine how many. Now, they probably wouldn't have stayed as long because once that shallow water froze, they wouldn't have had, they would just been gone probably back yeah, then. Uh, and the other, yeah. The other thing, there was no other supplemental food back then. You know, like you're saying, no ag fields and stuff. So right. they, they completely relied on 
the food that was produced naturally from Cheyenne Bottoms or, or, or all the other wetland complexes. So they didn't, they couldn't go out to to a cornfield and feed for when it got cold or whatever. They uh, had, a, they fed here and if it got too cold, they would just move on down the line. Like you're saying, they probably wouldn't, didn't stay quite as long because of the lack of food aside from the wetlands itself. So you would think, you know, a, a big prairie area wouldn't have provided any food at all for them. So uh, yeah. they had to, they had to find everything they needed here. So. And there probably wouldn't have been any kind of cattail issue back then, because if it was drying up four out of every 10 years, it, the cattails probably, I would, I'm just assuming this, correct me if I'm wrong, but the cat, there probably wouldn't have been the cattail problem is a probably caused because some of the water retention. Yes. Yeah. I, I would imagine there was probably some cattails uh, in some of the areas of, of, of what we call shine bombs now historically, but right. Uh, it, it wouldn't have been the, the huge takeover that we've had. Uh, the other thing, you know, yeah. silt, siltation has, has been caused cause of the cattail stuff. And, and back then, and we kind of saw that this drought too, is kind of a natural process when those, when the wetlands dry up for a couple of years, you start seeing these huge dust storms come through and that actually helps remove a lot of the silt out of, out of the wetland. So, uh, the, that dry period was pretty, it's just as important as the wet period of the wetlands historically too, because it allowed for that silt to, to re get removed out of there. That was the only way that uh, silt would get out of the wetlands. And, and again, that was a pretty important process. And then this, this year we, we would see uh, those big dust storms and stuff and the amount of, of uh, dust that would fly and the amount of silt it was actually removing out of some of those pools was pretty, pretty substantial. So, Hmm. So the silt dries and then just gets blown out. Yeah. Especially like here, you know, it's a, our soil is a little alkaline, so it gets that salty. So it dries out a little bit more and it gets a really fine powdery stuff. And it, it really mm -hmm. moves around a lot. In fact, one day there was a brick um, earlier this year, this uh, spring, there was a brick just at the top of it. And I just made note of it as I drove by. And, and by the end of the week, we had a really windy week. And by the end of the week, that brick was completely out of the silt. So it was just at huh. that top level. So, you know, three or four inches of, of silt got removed just in that week's time frame. So wow. removed around, it may not have all made it completely out of the pool, but it did right. move around. So, yeah. Now before the drought, we'd had a lot of really wet years and I know cattails was always an issue and man, people love to complain and, and gripe, especially about the previous manager on the forums he kind of took a beating um because of the cattails but those years were so wet they just couldn't they couldn't get them out mm -hmm. but i know we've had quite a few dry years here what what's the state of the cattails and what have you guys been able to do to deal with the cattail problem how what are methods you use to deal with the cattail problem and and what is the state of i mean this area has been i remember an article that came out in some magazine in the 90s about this issue at the bottoms with cattails i mean this is an ongoing battle so just kind of give us a state of the place as far as cattails as far as cattails goes since i've been here we've been able to knock out about five thousand acres of cattails so that's that's a pretty in my mind that's a pretty significant increase in usability 
of of the property, uh, not only to, to waterfowl, but for uh, hunters as well, but mainly for waterfowl, 5,000 acres is a huge increase. So we've been able, uh, been able to get into most pools. Pool two is still our problematic pool again, because we can't control any of the water that comes into it. We, we could put water in there, we could take some water off, but it's a slow process. Uh, one big rain in the right location and, and we we're out of it. We were able to this year, um, put, uh, we've knocked out about 5,000 acres or 550 mm -hmm. acres of cattails so far in pool two. Uh, my ideal scenario for cattail control, what I've found has worked best is we'll go in and aerial spray it, uh, say late July, early August of one year, and then leave it dry if we can. And then the following either fall, winter, spring, sometime burn those cat, those dead cattails that have been sprayed off. And then we'll go back through and disc them. Uh, that's the, the, that's what we've gotten the best control out of. Uh, and that, that's my ideal scenario but rarely do we able are we able to to do that uh spraying works pretty good too but then we got to get that that top off of it and disturb that soil we could go through there and just burn it off and then disc it if you burn off cattails it does nothing but helps helps them out so you got to burn it off and then go through and disc and it makes it easier to disc because our disc getting the ground better the ground mm -hmm. dries out a lot better the problem with the other problem with cattails is you leave them standing the ground doesn't dry off very well. It doesn't get any exposure to sun or wind, so it stays wet a lot longer. Um, and then the main thing is after you get them cleaned up is you have to uh, control that water and uh, pull the water off at the right time. You leave water on during that June, July timeframe when cattails germinate and they could just take back over. I mean, we're one, one or two years away from uh, the right, the wrong conditions in my mind, the wrong conditions. And that would just the cat will allow the cattails to explode back onto the area. So getting water control after you get them cleaned up, the, the most critical thing is just maintaining water and, and at the right time, right location. So to keep the cattails from, from bouncing back. Will cattail, I've got a spot that I hunt on the east side <clears throat> of the state and it's pretty small and we've been hunting it for about 10 years. And when we first started hunting it, there was no cattails in there. And it, it does get flooded um, by a river that comes up and, and comes in there. And then the last five years, the cattails have con are just choking it out. Um, mm -hmm. And it, this is not managed at all. It's, it's on public ground, but it's not, not managed. Is the only way that the cattails will ever um, disappear is if it just dries out for long periods of time? Or once it gets choked with cattails, is it just pretty much a done deal? Once it gets choked with cattails without any kind of management, it gets pretty tough. Uh, they, uh, even if it's been dry, like we, like pool two, for example, we hadn't had any water in there. Almost it dried up about uh, the end of June last year. And I just started noticing today, we've gotten enough rain that the, you know, even though there hadn't been any standing water in there for almost a, a year now, uh, the cattails are starting to cream back up a little bit in there. So it's, mm -hmm. it takes an extended period of time of, of dryness. Uh, the best, mode of action in those type of scenarios where you don't have any control over the water um, and you let them and you can't get in there with a the disc or, or burn or anything like that the, your only option is herbicide use and there's certain herbicides that are rated for uh, aquatic use so and um in in that scenario you, you know spray july august uh september time frame with those aquatic rated herbicides and that will 
knock him back for a couple of years, but you got to kind of keep doing the follow-up treatment. But the, the problem is you still have that dead, all that dead above ground material, that mm-hmm. mat that makes it hard for anything else to really come through. Uh, it prevents growth of, of the moist soil plants that you really want. So you got to kind of do something with that, but spraying it is, is to me is at least a, a little bit of a better option than just letting it continue to, to take on and take hold. So what's the penalty for a private citizen going in and spraying cattails on public land? <laughs> <laughs> Probably frowned upon, I assume. Yeah, and the last, you know, unfortunately, the last couple of years with herbicide costs, and especially the aquatic rated stuff, it, it, it's very expensive. And it, and it gets, yeah, this year, the price finally fell down a little bit, but the stuff that we use, it was about $75 a gallon of it uh, to spray. And we almost use a gallon of it per acre, so it gets it adds up pretty quick. So, right. So last thing on water, I know it's been, shoot, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years, probably longer, but that I've been hearing about people saying that the aquifer out there, Western Kansas is on its way out to the point where people have made predictions that farmers won't even be able to farm it at some point, that it's just a dying aquifer. In fact, I read a book about, it's called Buffalo Commons, and these two <clears throat> educated PhD husband and wife came through Kansas and, and some of um, the Plains areas and went small town to small town trying to convince all these local farmers that they just needed to move out so we could turn it all back to natural and bring in buffaloes and make a Buffalo Commons. And it was an interesting book because, I mean, I know that you've dealt with farmers and sometimes farmers are very particular about water and so i'll just say these two college professors from new york were not received too well as they went into (laughs) these (laughs) local farm communities (laughs) but um is there any truth to the problem with the aquifer um what what do you know about the state of the aquifer out there um yeah i mean in in this drought situation that we've been into did not help help anything uh luckily back in the 80s there was on one of our water rights our main water what I'd say our main water source is the wet walnut creek. That's our most predictable water source that we have. Um, back in the eighties, there was a, uh, the state got sued because we weren't bringing in the water properly to shine bottoms. And what that stem was kind of a, what's called the wet walnut Iguka intensive groundwater use agreement. So what that did is it restricted some of the irrigation and cut back some of the irrigation uh, within the wet walnut basin. And that, that has allowed us to have uh, a lot more steady and more reliable water source uh, under normal circumstances. There's, there's generally water available for us to, to bring in. You know, the, the last year or whatever is kind of an extreme situation and, and we weren't able to bring in any of the water because there wasn't any there. But uh, mm-hmm. without that in- intensive groundwater use agreement that we have in place on the wet walnut, uh, we probably would be hurting for for water on most years, but like I said, it at least allows some water available for us to bring in every year. Right, and so they actually took some of the irrigation water away from the farmers. Yeah, yeah, oh, it wow. also prevented uh, um, more uh, irrigation pivots from going out. So they made the farmer it, it, it kind of forced the farmer's hand to, to change some of their practices. And there was a lot of uh, flood irrigation versus uh, the, the center pivot irrigation and stuff mm-hmm. going on in the, in the wet walnut basin. So a lot of them switched over to, to more uh, 
water conservation practices, better conservation practices. And actually, you talk to some of them that were uh, pretty upset that they lost some of the water rights. And they'll tell you now, hey, that was the best thing that ever happened to us. We're oh, better farmers. Uh, we're better conservationists because of that. And yeah. uh, so it really did end up help, helping, not only helping them, but helped us. And so uh, it, that's one of the good things that we got going for us is the wet walnut iguca. And Quivira National Wildlife Refuge right now is kind of going through a similar uh, fight for water uh, rights as well down there. And they're kind of, uh, some of the stuff that they were looking at was, was loosely or kind of based on what had happened in the wet walnut basin as well. So, Well, I bet those farmers, when you start messing with their water, they don't just sit there and stay quiet about it, do they? No, and, and, I, and I can't say that. I, I don't blame them at all. I right. mean, that's their livelihood. So. Right. Yeah. I mean, so a big part of your, why, why do we give up our, our livelihood? So then some ducks have some water, you know, a lot of them don't, don't, um, hunt or don't care, don't have the passion for, for wildlife that that some of us do. And I said, no fault at at their own. That's just the way they are. And, and, uh, I I totally get it. My family was uh, originated, my family all farms and stuff or grew up farming. So I, I, I perfectly understand their, their side of the story as well. So. Right. Absolutely. It's a, it's a fine, fine balance. A lot of your job is not just managing the habitat out there. You've got to manage also the perceptions and opinions of waterfowl hunters, farmers, non-hunters, bird watchers. So you're not just managing. Yeah. It's definitely a complex job. That's for sure. So, yeah. Um, I want to switch gears and go into some of the regulations um, that have been enacted out there. I, I guess the main one would be the no wake rule. Mm-hmm. I know there was one, I think you guys only had one, maybe one or two years with water on where they, um, where they enacted the no wake rule. Can you talk about that? What it is and and did you personally push for that? And what problem is trying to be solved with the no wake rule out there? Yeah. So we, uh, 2021 uh, was the only year that, that that was in place that we had uh, water out here. So we only got to see uh, the results of that uh, regulation for one year. And the, the main thing, the first consideration when we started doing the no wave thing, and, and I was a big push for something, I kept getting counted uh, for, from a lot of waterfowl hunters about, you know, we need uh, motor restrictions, we need noise restrictions, we need something, you know, some kind of boating restriction on there, and I agree. But we also did had to take into consideration, you know, all all the the diverse uh, users of over the wildlife area, diverse hunters. We got to allow them access to the property, and I, and I get mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, boating the modern mud motor makes it pretty easy access to, to most of the area. But we needed to allow that, and we also didn't want to say somebody just got a brand new boat, and uh, you know, then we put in a twenty horsepower restriction or a fifteen or whatever it is they wouldn't be able to use that. That would probably upset. So we were looking at different ways to knock back the, the boating activity on the wildlife area while still allowing everybody to use what equipment they currently have and not mm-hmm. putting on future restrictions on that. And what it basically boiled down to is the start of this, this, uh, the boating restrictions was from a safety aspect out here. You know, we got at times, you know, on, on a busy, on our busiest day, we'll have 800 hunters out here. And then you have 800 people out here and there's four or 500 boats running around the property. You have people hiding in cattails, hiding 
wherever, you know, and, and you have all these boats running around, it was getting to the point where somebody was going to be getting hurt um, with by a boat. I mean, there you start watching them, and there's a one of the, one of the uh, popular, really popular YouTube channels had a video of them of a boat going through, and they were claiming it had a sixty horse motor, and it was busting through cattails and stuff, and that was kind of eye opening, like. Holy cow! Somebody is really the way the antics of the those individuals. Somebody is really going to get hurt. I mean, they're they're flying through purposely, just busting through cattails. And I was actually out here that morning that that particular video was filmed, and I heard that boat fire up. And it, I mean, there was a ton of people out here, and, and it's going. I don't know how fast it was able to go, but going rather fast through there. And uh, and that was kind of like, man, there. Somebody's going to get hurt. And then that, that yeah. it was, we're talking 2020 um, and, you know, COVID year. So there's a lot of people out here. The, uh, there was people getting, not only, not just getting the boat stuck in um, high spots within the pool. They were going so fast. They were going completely out of the pool and getting stuck <laughs> on our fire guards on, on air, I'm, you know, 15 to 20 yards out of water, completely out of the <laughs> flying 50. There was a guy got, got his boats stuck in our, our fire guards and our fire guards are discs. So they kind of have a U shape. They're discs out. Uh-huh. So the center of it was low. He got, he had to drive down or I didn't know. I heard about it after the fact he had to drive down our fire guard because his boat was completely down on fire guard. I'm talking at least 15 yards completely out from the nearest <laughs> shallow water. That scenario, you know, it shouldn't have been happening. And it was almost becoming right. a, not only, a, like I said, a safety was, was our biggest concern, but it was almost becoming a pleasure boating situation out here. Mm-hmm. It was like the most busiest jet ski day, you know, you can imagine on, on, on a lake, it was constant boat traffic. You know, the pressure on the on the resource was just getting so high. And it, was, and it wasn't just from shotgun shells. It was from boats. I mean, you know, we were having so much turnover with hunters as well. So every few, you know, uh, we have a group of hunters come in. First thing they do is they hop, they're hopping in their boat. They're running hot laps around the pool, trying to find a, uh, uh, where they're going to hunt, you know, that day or or the next day or whatever. And so they were going through, dumping their boat in every pool, scouting everywhere, you know, middle of the day. And then they come back and hunt. And then, you know, there's so much turnover every, every day. There's new groups coming in and doing that. Everybody was launching their boat. Everywhere was run, you know, running through all the pools. There was the ducks were not able to to rest and use the pools. Um, and then rallying ducks was becoming, uh, you know, even though it's not legal, um, it was pretty obvious that was happening a lot of times. So, so, you know, now, what is what part. is rallying ducks? Uh, when some of your party is still hunting, say you got your limit, you shot your limit of ducks. Mm-hmm. They'd hop in their boat and just go run laps around the pool to stir just ducks to up, kick to birds up. Moving. Uh, I mean, that was pretty. It, it's hard. It's one of those. It's hard to prove that that's what's happening, but it was. It's mm-hmm. one of those that's pretty obvious that was what's 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 happening. So, you know, besides just safety and just the the pressure, uh, a lot of the. Uh, a lot of states, a lot of, a lot of wildlife areas have restrictions on their boats, something they could use, horsepower restrictions, noise restrictions, speed, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of people would come up here and they hadn't been able to uh, to really see what their boat would do. So they get up here and they just want to see what their boat would do. One guy uh, from, from a southern state, he was for three hours, he was running his boat through one of our pools, uh, Pool 3B. 
just from one end to the other, different diagonals, different sections, cutting different crosses. And it turns out he was just trying to get his boat, see if his boat would get over 50 mile an hour. <laughs> that, he, he, he was mad. He was mad because he could only get it to 48. He wanted to see oh his boat gosh. hit 50 mile an hour. And this is a, you know, opening, you know, it's not opening day, but a, duck season's open. And there's a, this guy, you know, there's a bunch of people out there hunting. And there's this guy in his boat just running for three hours straight, just running his boat just to so see how fast it would go. We needed to cut back on that. And, right. and the no wake was, was one way uh, for us to, again, allow everybody to utilize their, their, their current equipment. Didn't have to change mm-hmm. anything. You just got to go slow. And uh, I think it was rather really effective. There was only a handful of people and a handful of issues that I saw uh, once that in 2021, when we, that first year, uh, the amount of voting uh, uh, activities was significantly cut down. Um, it, it, I think it really made a difference on the, the waterfowl using the area and then the overall enjoyability of, of hunting out here. Back in the late 80s, we had a, uh, their airboats used to be really popular out here. That used to mm-hmm. be the go-to boat. Uh, my, grand, my grandpa and everybody I know used, used to run out here with airboats. That got banned in the, the late 18, or 1980s. And I read a whole bunch of uh, newspaper articles, magazine articles and stuff about that ban on airboats and everything that we're, we were talking about with the boating and, and trying to get some kind of boating restriction. That was all almost verbatim from what was being said about airboats in the in the 1980s when that when those got banned. So uh, hopefully it, it, it's a step in the right direction to to kind of uh, limit the the pressure on, on the resource. And that's that's one of the the and you know that should hopefully make a difference on on the wildlife area and, and the birds using it. Yeah, and I think those pools are so big. I, I, when we started hunting around early nineties, long tails, surface drives, they just weren't, they weren't a thing. And so all of your pools just were bigger. They felt bigger because you Mm -hmm. couldn't access them all. And now with surface drives out there, there are a lot of areas you, you're not going to, that you could access if you could get up on plane, but if you, if there's no wake rule, you can't even, you can't access them. Yeah. So that makes the pool feel bigger um, yeah. which obviously it, is less it, pressure it, on the birds it definitely definitely it gives the birds places where they can go within the pool within the hunting pools not just the refuge but within the hunting pools that is a little bit tougher for everybody to access and, and that's what uh we really need i think to 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 help the resource out a little bit more and, and give the resource a little bit of an advantage and uh like i said in 2020 I was getting most, most days, two to three calls a day of, of boats getting stuck, you know, where they mm-hmm. get up on plane and they'd go through the cattails and they, they were, able, they weren't able to find a, a hole that they thought was there, maybe on aerial photos or whatever. Right. And they'd just get their boat stuck and they couldn't get back out. Um, when the no wake stuff, I never, I don't, that year I didn't get a single call about mm-hmm. a boat not being able to get back out. Uh, yeah. like I said, it, it was just because of the, you know, they weren't able to, to go in there fast and push through the cattails like they were before. So, or in those surface drives, I mean, you can be on plane and you're in open water and just not realize how shallow it is. And once you kick that thing off and you're not yeah. on plane anymore, you have to be careful because you can get stuck 
just even in open water like that if you if you kick yeah. the motor off or whatever and you're in because on those surface drives you can uh, i mean once you're on plane you can go on like three four inches of five inches of water i mean you can go but you better not turn it off <laughs> yeah yeah that's the problem you know everybody and, and, you know what a lot of people just don't know the, the area especially you know uh i, I saw one of the things you were going to talk about is maybe non-resident that they're not familiar mm-hmm. enough with the area and and that was getting a lot of them in a bind uh when, once they got back in there not being familiar with the area running their boats into places that uh, they're not going to be able to get back out so right Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, well let's let's jump into the non-resident thing right now. So in the past I guess 5 years there's been a lot of discussion, a lot of people, well, I don't know a lot of people. I feel like it's a lot of a, a small minority of very very vocal people that um are really complaining about the number of non-residents in the state and Kansas is now talking about and as far as I can tell, it looks like they're going to be able to pass it pretty easily to restrict non-residents to only being able to hunt on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Um, what the what are your thoughts and feelings about Cheyenne Bottoms? And is do you feel like that there is an overpressure problem due to non-resident hunters? Um, so I'll go back to look at some of our, our historical numbers right now. I got pulled up. I'm looking at, uh, back in 2014, uh, his, there was about 17% non-resident use and any time prior to that, there's some incomplete data out here on uh, Cheyenne Bottoms about the percentage of non maybe not, it's probably all there. It's just in paper files and stuff. I haven't had time to, to really mm-hmm. go over, but generally speaking, I, I haven't looked back and found some numbers back in the seventies. It was roughly 10 to 20% all the way up until 2014 and non-resident use out here. And then since then it started going on a, a steady increase in our last year, 2021, uh, it was just under 53% non-resident use out here. Mm-hmm. And it's maybe not so much, um, and it's not necessarily the, the number of, of uh, hunters out here because historically we had a lot more hunters that utilized shine bottoms. Uh, it's more of like the pressure issue that we're having. Uh, it's not an overcrowding. It's, it's a pressure. So this, the style of, of, and the, the way non-residents hunt is, is different than say you or I that go show up to a wildlife area. You know, they show up, we, we know where we're going. We're going to hunt there for a couple hours. Say we don't get our limit, 
we got stuff to do at home. We're going to pack up our stuff. We're going to leave. With non-residents, it, it, I, I'm not blaming them at all that they're here. They're going to hunt. So they, you know, they seem like they get there earlier in the in the morning. You know, three. You know, some of the other wildlife areas has that the 5 a.m. rule now, uh, access restriction stuff. So they're getting there earlier. They're hunting all day. They got six ducks to kill. They're going to hunt there until either legal shooting hours are up or they kill their six ducks. And when they're done shooting their six ducks, they're, they're not going to go back to the motel room. Let's go. <laughs> that was part of the boating thing. We got our six ducks. Let's go motor around and, and go find a scout the area. Go go look for a better spot. Um, the other thing it seems like uh, with non-residents, they, they uh, hunt bigger parties. Then it's, you know, that's one trend that, that I really started noticing in the last few years is there the, the, the party size is increasing. So mm-hmm. as the party inc- party size increases, obviously the number of shots getting fired increase, the longer it takes for, I think, party hunting is starting to play into this a little bit. It, the longer it takes for the group to uh, shoot their limit. So again, they're out there for a lot longer time frame. Um, again, the, with non-res, the boating pressure, a lot of the uh, uh, boating pressure that I was seeing was fr- from non-residents. Uh, we had to find a way, or we we're trying to find a way to reduce the, the amount of pressure, maybe not reduce the number of people, but the amount of pressure that we're seeing on the resource uh, year, year uh, throughout the year. Um, one thing that I, I picked up on, you know, like I said, some, some, year, uh, some years it was, roughly about 53% uh, non-resident use, but some weeks out of those years, it, there weren't hardly any non-residents. It, 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 you know, it dropped down to about 20 to 30% non-resident use, mm-hmm. but then certain weeks out of the year, uh, season, especially the early November timeframe, when when uh, they could show up and they can not, not only hunt shine bombs, they could go pretty much statewide wherever they wanted to, to go find the birds. Our non-resident use sometimes were jumping up in this, uh, upper 60s into the 70 some percent on resident use wow. during the day. So again, and you know, I hit on it a little bit earlier too, is the turnover. So every, you know, generally speaking, we have non-residents that, that show up and they're, they're on average, uh, based on our ice sportsman data and our, our check-in data, they're hunting here about three days. So they show up, they hunt. Uh, the first thing they do, like I said, they get in their boat, they go drive around, um, they get in their boat and, kind of create this disturbance they hunt for a couple of days uh, while they're hunting. They're, they're trying to find new places to hunt. Uh, they're, they're scouting uh, and they're hunting big parties. Then they turn around and leave. Well, the next group comes in, you know, there's always a group coming in and they're doing repeating the process. So every day there's, there's new groups coming and there's this hunter turnover that's happening uh, as they come to the bottoms or come to any of our wildlife areas. And it's just constantly getting this, uh, disturbance factor. Whereas you and I, when we show, we kind of know where we're going to go. Right. We're not out there all day. We're not out uh, looking for new places to hunt. We kind of know where we're going to go. We've through our season, we've figured out where we want to go. So there's a lot, we put a lot less pressure on there. And general, I, I don't hunt in big parties, uh, you know, two or three guys, and it doesn't take long. I like to hunt mm-hmm. by myself too a lot of times, but it doesn't take you, you know, the right two or three guys. You could, it should, it won't take you at nearly on a good day, it won't take you very long to get your limit. Then you're, you're, you're get whatever you're happy with, and then you get out of there. Um, 
So it's just the, the amount of pressure that they're putting on there. And, and some of the areas too, the, they're saying, you know, they're even staying way past sunset, you know, and again, I think they're, they go after they finish up hunting, maybe they're going to go scout another area at dark or try to find mm-hmm. a, a place, a different place to hunt. So it's just this constant turnover. When I first started hunting out at the bottoms, uh, especially back in college, this is, you know, 20 years ago, on a two, I had most Tuesdays or Thursdays, I had a morning or an afternoon off or, or um, some, sometimes a whole day off. So I'd come out to the bottoms and hunt a lot when I was in college. Like on a Tuesday or Thursday afternoon, you'd come out here, you'd be one of a few people out here. If there was 10 trucks out here on a Tuesday after, or Thursday afternoon, that was a lot. Right. Back in 2020, what really eye-opening experience for me was it was early November. I was working on East Side. On a Thursday afternoon, I counted over 70 trucks just along the main road. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, that wasn't going to any of the back parking lots and stuff like that. We used to have an off. So, it, you know, weekends, high pressure, a lot of people. And then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and most of Thursday, low pressure. Not a whole lot of people out here allowed the birds to come back and utilize the wildlife area. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, with the, with the popularity of waterfowl hunting and, and the n- number of non-residents, there's no off period of, of the pressure. It's just constant uh, yeah. throughout season long, uh, week long, day long pressure. Whereas before there was these peaks and valleys uh, of pressure uh, that we're just not seeing those peaks and valleys. And the peaks and the, the, va- the valleys is when the ducks can use, use the, the, the pools, the, the wildlife area without any kind of disturbance. Um, and we're just not seeing that anymore. It's just, just a constant disturbance, uh, all season long. Has the success rate during this time changed? So are, are the bird per hunt numbers dropping as the pressure on the birds increases? Um, so yeah, maybe not season long or, uh, from an overall standpoint, that I've noticed, but throughout the season. Uh, so one of the things I, I really start picking up on, uh, first early season is a different scenario. You know, the birds aren't quite as keyed into it. But as the season progresses, I, it's really obvious that the, the birds per hunters really starts dropping off as mm-hmm. uh, during our peaks peak use time. Right now I'm looking at a graph back, uh, uh, this has been 2020. Uh, some of our highest, when we had the – uh, peak and hunters was our lowest success rate. After we started mm-hmm. getting that huge pressure, the the birds, the, the harvest, and the number of hunters kind of meet. Whereas there's a pretty good gap early on where they're having a good good hunts. You know, maybe shooting average of two, three, four birds per hunt per mm-hmm. hunter. And as season progresses, and as the pressure starts increasing, it becomes more closer to one to one. So maybe one bird per hunter. You know, it's, so it does, it's pretty obvious to me that, that that's part of the, the, the pressure plays into the, the success. Yeah. I know that, um, a, a lot of times the different complexes will, when, when, when managers were putting more information on the department of wildlife and parks website, um, which it seems like that's starting to, they're putting less and less information, which I think is a good thing, but they would list their bird per hunt averages. And I know some of the complexes on the Eastern side of the state that are closer to the Kansas city Metro area, um, like MDC, they live in that one, 1.2, 1.3 birds per hunter. Mm-hmm. And you go out 
myself personally is just as far as overcrowding goes, those Eastern complexes are way overcrowded. It's very difficult yeah. out there to have a fun, successful hunt <laughs> because people are, are just crawling all over and they live in that 1.2. I saw one time they had like 50,000 birds there and the bird per hunter average is like 1.2 or something yeah. and that's if, if you're in the that kind of average range you're just people are not having much fun you know where but, you but, get out in uh, the western side and it's a lot better average it seems normally yeah so long-term average for here since uh i have reliable data back in night since 1997 long-term average here is 2.1 and of course some of those years are are some dry years too where there's the average was really bad because there wasn't mm -hmm. a whole lot of birds out here but you do talk to some of the the uh, the non-residents, and, and I do enjoy talking to a lot of them. Um, that's a good hunt. If they mm -hmm. if they can shoot a duck or two a day, that's a phenomenal hunt compared right. to where they're from. You know, some of them that, that they could come here and hunt for three days, and they have they can shoot more birds, even though it's, it's not you know you and I might not consider a great hunt. So they shoot six or eight birds in two or three days. That's a pretty good. That's more than they get to shoot at home in their right. home state, you know, so, uh, I get why they're, they're coming and, and why they want to come, come here because of the, you know, if it's that poor quality, it makes it pretty, mm -hmm. to me, it makes it pretty tough to, um, uh, just want to stay home. If you want to go shoot a, a few birds, you know, like I said, it sounds like it's a pretty good quality hunt up here. So, and I, guess, I would agree. You can have days where you, you can have days where you shoot a couple birds and it's a great hunt <clears throat> for me personally these Eastern complexes, I can't enjoy that where there's people crawling around everywhere. Yeah, Some guy comes in at 10 o'clock. He sets up 90 yards from me. I shoot two birds that day. I'm so annoyed with that guy. Even if I shoot, shoot a limit, I might not have a safe, yeah. but if I'm tucked in a little hole somewhere all by myself, I get a couple nice flocks right down the decoys. I kill two. It's like totally different based on, how other people act, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, and, and their, their perspective of crowding is, is again, totally something that you and I, you know, talking to them is it, it's unreal. You know, that's a normal hunt for them. They're, right. they're used to that. They're used to somebody hunting uh, 50 to hundred yards away from them all right. year long. And no matter where they go, and if they see a bird, if they get a shot off on a bird, they're happy. Yeah. Um, and that makes it difficult for us to go, oh, you know, we're, we're overpressured, we're overcrowded when, when it's a different perspective. Now I don't want, I would hate for Kansas to turn out to like some of these places that I'm talking about after having discussions with these hunters and stuff, I, I would hate for, for, for us to lose what we have. And yeah. I guess maybe this is a, a step, uh, a potential step that would allow us to conserve what we do have, uh, you know, as far as our, our wildlife resource or waterfowl resource in the state, hopefully that's it's a step in the right direction that allows at least the potential for some quality hunts to, to continue on. My I guess my biggest concern with it is once you get government making regulations and you get them in that mode, if this doesn't work, then what what's the next regulation? All of a sudden they're saying you can't hunt afternoon, then they're moving some complexes to pulling pills like in missouri that's my fear is that mm -hmm. the great thing about kansas is you can truly freelance it and, yeah, and that, i would and hate to see us get to the point where there's so many regulations that it you can it, it ruins the 
the freelancing experience, I guess. That's my mm-hmm. worry. Well, uh, I'm sure, I don't know if you were aware. Historically, Shine Bottoms used to be you had to draw or, or uh, you had to hunt from a blind. So you had to keep yeah. it at four o'clock in the morning. There was a long line, sometimes a yeah. mile long of, of people coming in here. You had to pick a blind or draw for mm-hmm. a blind. Uh, they only allowed X number of people out here um, at a time. And, and to me, I, I don't, I, I don't, want to go back to that because it, right. it's a lot of staffing time. I mean, if, if <laughs> yeah. we're here regu- trying to regulate a draw, that takes away mm-hmm. time for me actually trying to do something that improves the wildlife area, for, you know, habitat wise and stuff like that. So that takes a lot of staff time away from, from actually managing the property. Uh, so I'm hope I'm hopeful that that it doesn't ever have to go to a draw system. So. Yeah, I, I do too. That, that would be absolute worst case scenario, cutting it off at 12, and then draw a system. If we, I mean, that would change the face of Kansas hunting completely. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's so that that's that's my concern about. It. So to to recap, your feeling is that the number of the percentage of non-residents has doubled and sometimes tripled since the early 2010s, and the people that come here are just spending so much more time in the marsh that they're that they're ruining essentially it's ruining the experience for everybody and put probably putting the birds nocturnal more quickly chasing the birds out um and that's that's the general problem it's not a number of people it's how the people are conducting themselves once they're here that's that would be my yes i I agree it's more the way that people conducting i'll relay one more quick story uh so Couple years, it was in 2020, we had uh, Pool 3A, which is our primitive pool, walk-in only. Uh, we had that in great shape. We just knocked out all the cattails. We planted all of it to millet or milo, so it, the conditions were just prime in there. And early duck use was great, but the, even though it was walk-in only, there was still a lot of pressure in 3A. Uh, everybody saw that great habitat, and they thought that's where the ducks need, wanted to be. Well, ducks wanted to be there, but just at night. Right. So during, the, during our split, so... You know how our splits work, or we have a, a mm-hmm. two, one or two weeks off where there's no hunting. So on a Sunday, by the end of a regular duck season, you could drive through three, or drive around three A, and you rarely saw a duck there during daylight hours. I mean, they just weren't there just because they were getting hit so hard. Um, duck season closed on Sunday. Monday morning, I drove to drive through to do my normal check and see what uh, what people were up to over the weekend with with gifts they left me throughout the as far as trash and stuff throughout the wildlife right. just general check on so it's monday morning duck season closed sunday monday morning eight o'clock in the morning pool 3a is just loaded with pintails and pintails to me is, is a, an indicator species if, if they're the most wary of, of ducks it seems mm-hmm. like and if they're there something changed and they are i believe that they are that tuned in the waterfowl now is that tuned in to pressure that they picked up on, there was no boats, there was no vehicles, there was no door slam, nobody yelling at their dog, no shots being fired, nothing, no activity at all. And and they felt comfortable staying there. They were completely nocturnal the day before, the next day, boom, it's, there's several hundred pintails sitting right next to the road. The wow. Whole thing, of all places. That things. quickly. I, th- I just think they're that tuned into pressure anymore. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. My, my, the best pintail encounter I ever had was out there. Um, I'm guessing it was mid to late nineties. 
And we shot, we, I don't know if we went shot any pintails, but there was just hundreds and hundreds of pintails flying over for just hours. And they were so wary that day, but I had just never seen that number of pintails. And it just became a kind of a bird watching show because they mm-hmm. would all be kind of landing a hundred yards from us and we'd try to move and then they'd still be landing a hundred yards from us. But the yeah. show of pintails that day was just remarkable. It was just remarkable. I could, I could recount a bunch of Cheyenne Bottoms memories. My dad actually used to, he's got some stories about those old blinds and standing along the fence. And I guess he said that they would open the gate yeah. and it was like a riot to run to get checked in people were getting jammed up against the fence and <laughs> yeah old fist fights and stuff like that yeah and, yeah. and if, if you uh made the guy that was running the show that day mad if uh, one guy got stomped and he made them all he made them all go outside the gate reset and everything like that and then he'd let him back in in an orderly fashion so yeah i mean it was always always you know situations like that and, you know hunter satisfaction is one thing that we're, we're, we're trying to strive for a little bit and uh, one of the guys that used to run on his check station, back in the old point system days, he, uh, one guy came in at 11 o'clock in the morning, and he was mad. He had shot his 10 pintails. Back then, pintails were worth oh one gosh. point. He oh shot 10 pintail drakes in the back of 3B, and he was mad because it took him until 11 o'clock in the morning to shoot 10 pintails. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. yeah wow. I mean, so, Hunter Satisfaction, we're probably never going to achieve it. You know, it's never yeah. – Never as good as it used to be in our own, in our memories and stuff. And, uh, but anyway, so, you know, we are trying to strive for hunter satisfaction. And we're not trying to uh, uh, make it too – I don't like a lot of regulations myself. I, 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 I like just being able to, to go someplace and enjoy a hunt or have a hunt. Um, so, but, you know, when it comes to the point when – uh, the resources significantly get being impacted. Uh, we, it's time for a change and it's time to, to try something different uh, at, the, at the trend. There may not be a resource uh, left for us to, to try to manage, you know, like mm-hmm. you, you know, saying some of these places that talk to some of the, the out-of-staters and they no longer have a duck to shoot. They no longer have deer to shoot on some of their wildlife areas just because it's been overpressured, overcrowded. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, and so I, again, I, I hate, I would hate for that to happen uh, to us uh, where there's, there's nothing there for us to, to manage and, and uh, no resource there at all. So. I wish that on the, on the I sportsman. Um, so you have to log into it in the morning and, and basically report to the state where you were hunting, what numbers of birds you shot, what types of birds. I wish they would add a hunter satisfaction to like one out of five. How do you feel? That would be really, really interesting to gauge. Here's the bird per hunt average, but here's the satisfaction levels. I, I think that would, I think that's an important number. We, and we've talked about doing that um, uh, to some extent we've had, you know, in the last couple of years, we've had several uh, internal discussions, internal working groups and stuff. Uh, and we've had that discussion, but what we're trying to do is with the iSportsman or now the, the Go Kansas Outdoors app. So iSportsman is no longer, we're using the, okay. the new app. Um, what we're trying to do is just get factual data, just hard data. Mm-hmm. And we felt that that was more important. If we start asking too many questions or making it too complex, we may not be getting 
accurate data, the, the real data, the hard numbers that we were wanting. Mm-hmm. If we, it started getting too complicated, too convoluted, uh, we felt like hunter satisfaction, we can maybe try, we could get by some of the waterfowl surveys and stuff that we said. Right. But that is something that we, we, we've had a lot of discussion about is adding a hunter satisfaction and uh, it may come, come to it at some point too. So, right. Well, a couple more things before we um, leave here. I know that I, I don't know if you're aware, I do have a YouTube channel. Um, it's, I've been going eight years. This is year number nine. It's called freelance duck hunting. I've got a few videos out there. Um, and I started my channel right at 2015. That's like when it all was, that was like the first year anyone was doing these types of videos. And, and I talked to several land managers during that time and about, you know, what, what are the legalities of what I'm doing? And, and, and they felt like it was a pretty gray area, multiple people I talked to, but no one I talked to said it's obviously illegal to do this. And during the last commission meeting, they came out and said, it is illegal. It's always been illegal. Um, what, what before this commission meeting, what was your stance on filming on at Chime Bottoms for a channel that is making any type of money off it, whether there's sponsors or monetization, what had been your stance before this year? So I just want to, I, a lot of the public lands managers in Kansas are law enforcement certified. I am not law enforcement certified. So I can't, uh, as far as regulation goes, it, it, my, the regulation was that, you know, we had a, we banned guiding on, on public lands several years mm-hmm. ago. And right. the regulation was not a ban of guiding. It was a ban of commercial use of wildlife areas. So it's the same kind of, to my understanding, again, I'm not law enforcement so I don't want to go too far into the weeds, but uh, it, it kind of falls under the same thing as as guiding, uh, filming for for money. Um, you know, the, we even though a lot of our wildlife areas are, are real popular spots for people to come take. You know, we have a lot of photographers come out here. Uh, they could take a picture that, from what I understand, they can't turn around and sell that picture that was taken out at the bottoms. Uh, there's senior, you know, a lot of senior pictures get taken out uh, on a lot of our wildlife areas. You know, mm-hmm. the same thing. I can't have a lemonade stand, you know, out here and sell lemonade mm-hmm. to hunters. Uh, you know, it's kind of that that uh, any kind of making trying to make money off of, of public lands has kind of been restricted. But got, mainly it was the, the that regulation initially was put in place for uh, to, to stop the guiding activities on, on our mm-hmm. public lands. Right. So so your stance even before this year is that is that those type of that type of filming um, for like YouTube was illegal. That was my understanding, but I don't think a lot of that wasn't like I said, that the primary focus was, was on the the guiding activities out here, you know, before that there was a lot of guides that were operating out out at the bottom and a lot of our public lands for waterfowl hunting. And and it was obviously having it taken again, part of the problem of taking its toll on the, on the resource. So, do you know, do those regulations, like, how does that affect core ground? Like, you know, you've got people, you've got camping vloggers, hiking vloggers. How, how did, are these regulations just specifically for Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks, or do they extend to all public waters? Um, again, that that's more of a law enforcement stuff, and, and that's not my, my area of, because right. I'm not law enforcement, but the core has, 
uh, a different set of guidelines. Corps of Engineers has a different set of guidelines than what we have. Most mm-hmm. of those regulations were have been put in place um, for just our, our state managed properties, our state mm-hmm. wildlife areas. And then uh, that also goes on to uh, uh, our, our walk in hunting is treated the same as our, our state waterfowl area or state wildlife areas. Okay. Um, la- last couple of things. What has been the most difficult aspect over the last five years on what your expectations were and you've lived it out five years? What, what have you found to be the most difficult aspect of managing that area? Uh, it's probably, it's going to be something a little bit different than, uh, it's going to be managing an invasive species called Phragmites that we have out here. Uh, uh-huh. It's a grass. It just, I mean, there, there's, there's, there's plenty of very frustrating aspects of my job. Uh, but that is probably the most frustrating thing that, that I deal with on a, on a day-to-day basis, you know, is it, trying to figure out a way to manage that problem plant because if people think cattails are bad their cattails are easy to take care of in comparison to fragmites that we have out here and they're just going to keep it just there's not a whole lot of options out there that we we have to control fragmites and all the options are very expensive so and it's basically that's really interesting yeah i knew that i knew that was starting to become a problem um, in all the areas, I, I never would have thought that that would be that big of a problem that you would list that as the number one most difficult thing. That's really <laughs> if they if they get a foot, a foot what's worst case scenario? It absolutely um, you look 10, 20 years down the road. If it just goes as poorly as it could possibly be with Phragmites, what what would we be looking at? Uh, the whole place would be a solid stand of Phragmites. Oh, and, and, yeah. I mean, so the. Some of the issues that, I mean, I've tried different things. We spraying herbicide use, uh, timing of herbicide use, we're finding it's a little bit pretty pretty critical with it. Um, you get a, go in there and we get a pool cleaned up and we get two years of, of just solid spraying. We, we spray every plant we got and we think we have it whooped. And then the next year, boom, it, it germinates and it's, it's everywhere again. Uh, this year we tried pool two, we've had it dry, thought, hey, let's try disking it uh, during the dormant season to allow frost to get to its roots to maybe it'll kill out the, kill the plant that way. So we dissed and dissed and dissed this winter. Uh, and unfortunately it's back <laughs> where we're disking. It's a little bit thinner, but it's still back. So it just doesn't offer a lot of management options. And, and basically the, to really control it, it requires a, a different herbicide than we use with cattails. It's called them, uh, herbicides in the Mazapir and it's really expensive. It's $75 a gallon. Um, you can't aerial spray it with a airplane it has to be with a helicopter or you have to use ground equipment and it just, it, it's so time consuming and it's so expensive and it just seems like we can never make headway. It seems like you, you got it on its heels. You're like, man, I think it's, we got her whooped and then it just comes back and it, and it's just, it's just horrible to deal with. From what you're seeing with it, what would your prediction be? Do you think of it's a losing battle and over time it will win? No, I think what we're doing is we could keep it at bay. You know, mm-hmm. if we don't, in most of our pools, uh, we, we've got it knocked back bad and good enough where, you know, it's a tolerable level of it. Uh, in pool two, it's just, I don't know if we'll ever get there with that. It's going to have, it's going to have to take one of those years where we just, you know, I spent all, uh, 
half of my budget on, on aerial spraying it and uh, hope that it has the results I want. So, right. Well, hopefully you guys will go to handle that. All right. Last one. What has been the most satisfying part of your position over the last five years? There's two times the year. The first time I love it when I get to open up the gates and all that habitat that I, that's been out here. The first day I get to go around and I start to see water trickle out out there in the in the perimeter pools in the hunting pools. That is very rewarding to me. I just love to see the water and I love to see the the wildlife respond to that water. And then the other time of the year is is the springtime of the year. I love the spring when when there's ducks, there's shorebirds, there's a, all the water waterfowl and all the wildlife out here they're using the pools uh, they're undisturbed so you really get to see what areas okay i managed i did this in this area you can tell that the ducks are really using those areas uh for the management practice because during the fall generally speaking you you don't get to because of, again the pressure they're just not in the hunting pools that much during daylight hours so you, you can't see how they're using it but in the springtime you get to really see the ducks uh use the the management that you've done, uh, you get to see them interact with each other. You get to see their behavior. Uh, this morning before we got, I got on, I went check. Like I said, we were checking the restrooms this morning, and there was uh, two two big broods of, of wood ducks in, in the inlet canal swimming down the inlet canal. That's really rewarding to me when I get mm-hmm. to see that type of stuff. And I, I, yeah. like I, said, I just love love the springtime because there's always something out here that that to see. You know, even if I have a bad day or whatever, it's pretty easy to to go stop and stop the truck and get the binoculars out or roll the windows down, listen and, and look around in the springtime. It's really, really enjoyable. I encourage everybody that waterfowl hunts come out here in the, in the spring and see the areas, uh, see, how, see the ducks out here and the amount of waterfowl that use it. It's, it's really fun. So. Is there any particular bird you've seen out there that would be uncommon? Like, wow, I can't believe that I saw whether it's a shorebird or, duck or do you have any memories of seeing something that just I like long-tailed ducks we, uh-huh. we get some long-tailed ducks out here and it, it, it's strange every every long-tailed duck that I've seen out here has been almost the same same spot even though it's different years huh. uh some one time there were like six of them out here but my grandpa when he was he always told me the story of shooting a long-tailed duck out here at the bottom hmm. and he brought it into headquarters when they did the check-in and uh they were just so floored by that long-tailed duck being out here. In fact, he had mounted it and and gave it two shine bombs. Of course, it is long, it's been long gone uh, since then. But uh, so the long-tailed duck strikes something for me just because of that story of my grandpa shooting one out here and then, then getting yeah. to see him, you know, like that's usually cool. a couple in a year. So, yeah, that's neat. All right. Last thing, your predictions for water. How much water or will we have water for the 2023 waterfowl season what's your prediction it's <laughs> quite the loaded question um <laughs> i i'm hopeful i'm really yeah. hopeful that we are it seems like this pattern that we've been in the last 12 months is, is really changing for the better i mean we're, there's rainfall and it's and it's hitting it's just getting under the right cloud to, to allow that to happen i, I think we're we're heading in the right direction uh, back in 2013 when it was completely dry it was completely dry until august and then it filled up in August. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an ideal scenario for me. I yeah. just assume it stayed pretty dry until August. That allows us to continue to do some of the, the work that we haven't quite finished up or wrapped up. 
and then August come around and then, then it can fill up. That'd be perfectly fine. And a couple of years ago, uh, it wasn't, we weren't quite this bad off, but we were, we didn't have a whole lot of water. We left on Labor Day weekend, on Labor Day Friday, and there was only a few inches of water, like 12 inches of water in a couple of storage pools. There's a little bit of water in pool two, and that was it. It didn't look like there was going to be much. Left on Friday, came back Tuesday, Labor Day, and the place is pretty much full. So mm-hmm. it can happen. What year was that? Uh, 2018, I believe. I think you were on on with us on the Duck Gun podcast like two weeks after that rain event, if I remember yeah. right, because it saved – saved the day it it did and, and you, yeah and and the the birds responded tremendously w- with that because i mean it was just you you put that much water on 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 uh that much wetland it was pretty amazing to see the, the number of ducks that used it following right that, so. all right well i appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to come on here and and talk with us uh Every everyone seems to think you're doing a fantastic job from from what I can tell. Um, the the perception of everyone around is that you're just doing a wonderful, wonderful job. So keep doing what you're doing and uh, keep fighting those fragmites and <laughs> <laughs> to keep up all the hard work. Well, thank you. I, I really enjoy what I'm doing. And, and like I said, I've been hunting this. My family's been hunting the shine bottoms for as long as, you know, it's been open. My grandpa was probably one of the first people that hunted out here when it when it came a wildlife area. So I'm really trying, I'm really trying to do what I feel is, is best for the wildlife area and, and improving it. So I, I may not be doing what you think is right, but I'm doing what I feel is best for the resource, you know, and, and I'm really trying to improve it and, and make an impact on, on the wildlife area. And I, I just love it. it. When, when managers are tied into the area, like Matt farmers, the same way mm-hmm. tied into the area had their family. They've, they've, it's been in their blood their whole life. Guys like that are going to do a better job than someone coming in. That's not maybe a duck. Hunt. Cause I know you're a huge waterfowler and that you're the kind of guys we want managing these properties. It's like you got memories with your grandpa, you got memories, with, you know, it's like, you're, you're the guy we want on the job. So yeah. hopefully this will be a lifetime job for you. And in 30 years, we'll be having another conversation like this. Well, I hope so too. I hope, I hope people don't run me out. <laughs> yeah. All right. Until next time, this has been another episode of the North American Waterfowler Podcast. Podcast.